Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined as always by Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. Hannah, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Tony? I'm awesome. Avi, I suspect you're doing pretty well. I'm doing I'm doing fine. I was uh I was Hannah had this like sparkly filter thing on your camera. Trying to use it to warm me yeah, up because I'm still freezing <laughs> here in the northeast. These are uh I iCloud reactions or FaceTime reactions. Oh, that's all which it is. Have been <laughs> Yeah. When we when we ever get around to creating a YouTube channel, you, the the listeners can see it for themselves. Somewhere <laughs> it's probably like something I should have known about. Like, oh my god. <laughs> These people. <laughs> well, so yeah, Gen Alpha thinks we're yeah probably so. No, I'm showing age here. Um, well, 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 let's talk about some content. So you know, we've talked about a few genetic conditions on the podcast: cystic fibrosis as a possible protection against tuberculosis. We talked about that in episode twenty-two. Sickle cell trait as a protection against malaria, um, just recently in episode eighty-one. Wilson's disease, episode sixteen alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency in episode 69. So definitely have covered this as sort of a recurring theme. But tonight, we're going to be answering the question, why might hereditary hemochromatosis have had an evolutionary advantage? Hannah, how did this question come to you? Well, first it came to my patient. Um, So I was in hematology clinic discussing the diagnosis of hereditary hemochromatosis with a very thoughtful and inquisitive patient. And I had described that it is typically thought of as more common in people of Northern European ancestry. And they asked why. And it was such a great question that I had to look into it. And our clinic actually has a post-clinic conference. So there's a fellow five-minute five, which is a five-minute question. So I looked it up and shared it with the clinic at that. Uh, and that inspired me to look more into the question. This is, I would say, one of those situations in which a genetic variant today can tell us something about human history and physiology through the ages. I feel like if we're going to be going through human history and physiology through the ages, it's going to take more than five minutes. Uh, so we've got a big task ahead of us. So where should we start in answering these questions? Sometimes they run into 10 minutes. But let's start with a description of what hereditary hemochromatosis is, because I think that'll help us understand the history a little bit. This is a disease that affects a few different organ systems. And since we each see a different slice of the medical system, I thought I'd ask you guys, when do you guys think about hereditary hemochromatosis in your daily lives? <laughs> in my daily life, I don't necessarily think about it all that much. But in the hospital medicine context, I definitely think about it uh, when I'm seeing a patient with a new diagnosis of cirrhosis. And I'm wondering, you know, what might be the predisposing condition, um, particularly, you know, when I'm thinking about what tests to order. Often I'll be ordering an iron panel with a transferrin saturation. That'll be on my sort of checklist of things. And a very high transferrin saturation will prompt me to think about this diagnosis of hereditary hemochromatosis as, as maybe the cause of cirrhosis. That, that's what I think. Yeah, I guess for me, other than the cirrhosis, like Tony had said, I guess hemochromatosis doesn't come up that much in the intensive care unit. Uh, perhaps one way would be someone with uh, like a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, and we're wondering why. You know that uh, uh, might be something that we uh, would consider. Yeah, in the ICU, everyone has another reason for a high ferritin. Uh, but I would say those are two pretty big end organ sort of organ manifestations of hereditary hemochromatosis. So hereditary hemochromatosis is a genetic condition which is most commonly caused by genetic variation or mutation of the HFE gene. 
which encodes for a protein called the human homeostatic iron regulator protein. I think the name tells the story pretty well. It's well-named. It's a protein that regulates how our bodies absorb iron from the gut in order to maintain homeostasis. They do this by binding the transferrin receptor and thus allowing it to regulate hepcidin. It also controls release of iron out of blood cells like monocytes, tissue macrophages, and neutrophils. There are a few common gene variants. Uh, the most two, the two most common gene variants that cause hereditary hemochromatosis in the HFE gene are H63D and C282Y. So I think about this diagnosis more often than I make it. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's the epidemiology here? How, how frequent is this? Because maybe I'm underdiagnosing it. So. The condition itself is not that common, and part of that is just because even people with two copies of the gene don't always develop the clinical disease. But being a carrier for one of these genetic variants is quite common. So in a study of 100,000 primary care patients in the United States and Canada, 24% of people in the U.S. who identified as white had an H63D variant. 20% of those who identified as Native American had the H63D variant, and 18% of those identifying as Hispanic had the variant. The percentage was lower in populations who identified as African American or Asian. 10% of those identifying as white had a C282Y variant. So these are people with just one gene change. We aren't going to talk as much about other genes that are associated with hereditary hemochromatosis, but I do want to point out that this is not the same across all populations. So there's a condition called juvenile hereditary hemochromatosis associated with the HJV gene, which is more common in Southern Asia. Ferroportin disease uh, is more common in Africa. And so if you see a patient with iron overload, even if the HFE is negative or they don't have European ancestry, you should still consider hereditary hemochromatosis if it's relevant. Now, liver disease and hereditary hemochrom- cl- and clinical diagnosis of hereditary hemochromatosis is less common, really because, as I said, most people with one copy of the variant gene, nothing really happens unless there's another reason for liver damage. Those with two copies of the gene are the ones who are most likely to load iron, either the H63D or the C282Y, and C282Y is really more associated with iron loading. And those who have what we call compound heterozygosity, meaning one copy H63D and one copy C282Y. They can load iron, but they're less likely to. So just to clarify something, you mentioned that 24% of people identifying as white had uh, the H63D variant. So that was one copy of the variant, not homozygous? That's right. So that's okay. the, that's heterozygous. Perfect. Okay, great. And you, know, you mentioned compound heterozygosity for hereditary hemochromatosis and being a risk factor. Um, you know, I, I uh, did want to mention episode 72, bringing up Beethoven, when we talked about the fact that on some recent genetic analysis, just within the last year, it was identified that he, Beethoven, was a compound heterozygote for mutations in the HFE gene himself. But the thing, you know, returning to this idea of loading iron, what does it mean, Hannah, to load iron? Yeah, it's um, a term that sounds like weightlifting, but is unfortunately in lived experience quite different. So those who have this genetic variant and are loading iron, what it means is that they build up more iron than they need over the course of a lifetime. Because instead of their body being able to say, unleash the hepcidin, you know, we have enough. If they're having steak several nights in a row, for example, they aren't blocking that absorption of iron. 
So all of that extra iron has to go somewhere, and the places it can go are the liver, the joints, the heart, and endocrine glands, which include the pancreas, pituitary, and thyroid. It can also cause a darkening of the skin if enough iron deposits on the skin. For those with homozygous HFE gene mutations, this typically presents in one's 40s or 50s, though it's earlier in people that have some of these other variants that we talked about earlier, such as the HJV gene. And this may have also already occurred to you, but people who have regular menstrual periods tend to develop iron overload later in life than those who don't, um, because it's sort of built-in monthly phlebotomy. I just have this image of like all this iron flowing in and like someone being like, all right, all my cupboards are filled. What? Do, where am I going to put it? All right, let's put some in the heart. Let's put some in the liver. Let's put some in the thyroid. Just like figuring out where the heck can we just shove it all because it, it just keeps coming in uh, unabated. Where is that hepcidin? So I want to hear more. Before we do, uh, let's first hear from our sponsor for this episode. This episode is sponsored by Audible. In addition to great content like The Curious Clinicians, Audible has thousands of podcasts from popular favorites to exclusive new series, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, comedy, and exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio. Audible lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one easy-to-use app. You'll find voices that motivate to spark you to take action, personalities that encourage and enlighten, so that you'll have a partner on your journey. I really enjoyed listening to one of the Audible titles um, that I found on there. Actually, that was recommended by my wife. It was called Quiet by Susan Cain. And I really enjoyed that audiobook. I felt like it helped me understand myself um, a little bit better as someone who's sort of an extroverted introvert. Um, highly recommend the listening experience on Audible. And one of the things I love is that I own the titles I select on Audible. This allows me to come back to them whenever I choose to. And one book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, is a fascinating review of the evolution of morality. And it's one of these examples of a, of a title that I just come back to over and over and over again. Another title I love to revisit is the entire uh, Sherlock Holmes series, read by the remarkable Stephen Fry. The title includes more than 60 hours of Holmes mysteries. It is absolutely fantastic having this at my fingertips anytime I'm in the mood. Audible members can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. With the app, you can listen anywhere as it's all in one place, which is great if you're on the go or just relaxing at home or stranded on a road trip and in need of 60 hours of Sherlock Holmes content if you're, if you're Tony. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days using our own Curious Clinicians code. Visit audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500. That's audible.com slash TCCPOD or text TCCPOD to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. All right. So welcome back. Um, I want to summarize before we hear more from Hannah. Um, so I think one of the first things we heard from you, Hannah, is that people with two copies of the genetic variant in the HFE gene slowly build up iron in their liver, their joints, heart, endocrine organs, skin. And this itself is known as the condition hereditary hemochromatosis. Um, and it presents in patients often around the age of 40 to 50. I remember in medical school uh, learning about 
sort of this idea of bronze diabetes because of the combination of skin hyperpigmentation and iron overload, sort of where it damages sort of the iron damages the beta cells in the pancreas. But it seems like there's a lot more to it. So I kind of want to come back to that original question that we had, um, and it has to do with the evolutionary advantage, because there must be some reason why we're packing all this iron in. Um, I don't think it's just a a mistake of of sort of uh, evolution. Usually there's some reason. So why is it so common specifically in the patients of European ancestry? All right. So now I think we've set the stage for the question at hand. And this journey is going to take us back through two significant uh, epochs in world history. The first is the Neolithic Revolution, and the second is the Middle Ages. And I want to be clear up front that this is not settled science. There are lots of different groups out there with different hypotheses on where this genetic variant originated and what the varying evolutionary pressures were. But I want to share with you guys a few hypotheses that I found uh, and what they might tell us about human history. So you mentioned the Neolithic Revolution. I was really hoping we would start with like the Iron Age, but it sounds like we're going back. You know, it's an episode about hemochromatosis, hepcidin. Uh, but it sounds like we're going even farther back to the Neolithic Revolution. To refresh our memory, Hannah, can you just remind us how, how far back do we have to go before talking about you know the Neolithic Revolution? Yeah, I, I will admit that I had to refresh my memory on what exactly the Neolithic Revolution was. I, I've never heard so, of it, so this is this is new to me. <laughs> But it turns out really influential to our modern lives. So the Neolithic Revolution refers to the transition of human societies from hunter-gatherer lifestyles to agrarian societies and settlements. It started separately in lots of different regions of the world, uh, with sort of foci of this revolution starting in the Americas, in sub-Saharan Africa, and East Asia. And the agricultural movement we're going to talk about today specifically began in Southwest Asia in what is now called the Middle East, and specifically what's called the Fertile Crescent, or may have been called Mesopotamia. Around 10,000 years ago, people in this region began cultivating crops and domestic animals for food. This concept spread eastward and reached Europe around 6,000 to 7,000 years ago, sort of spread across Europe from Southwest Asia. Two major changes to the European diet that happened because of this were the addition of cereal grains and dairy, particularly dairy from cows. So I'll be honest, I'm I'm kind of glad to hear that um, my children's diet of cinnamon toast crunch and milk goes back to prehistory. Um... I assume that that even back then, Cinnamon Toast Crunch was the preferred choice for a morning breakfast. Absolutely. An important innovation that was brought to us uh, via the <laughs> Neolithic Revolution. Absolutely. Like, thank goodness. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so cereal and milk in this way does kind of go back to prehistory. It appears that somewhere along the spectrum of development or somewhere along the spread of this Neolithic revolution from Southwest Asia into Europe, a key difference arose in the groups of people who were living in Central and Northern Europe, which was the ability to preserve lactase into adulthood and continue drinking milk even after infancy. So this is sort of the baseline state. Most people globally are lactose intolerant or were at the time. And this was a genetic variant to be able to preserve lactase. This possibly also pressured by a cold climate, which made it more difficult to grow the varied diet from other places that the Neolithic revolution had started, really meant that cereal grains and cow milk were very emphasized in these areas of Europe. 
So cereal and milk, how does that lead to the disease state that we know today? Unfortunately, the two are like a horribly combining thing to foil our iron consumption. So the first issue is something that may feel very familiar to many of us is that cow's milk is very low in iron. This is why babies get iron deficient if you give them too much cow's milk. This is why we limit how much infants can drink cow milk. The second is that whole cereal grains actually are iron chelators because of phytates, which are plant storage form of phosphorus on their surfaces of these whole grains. And so combined together, that's a low iron protein source that's replacing meat and fish and an iron chelator. And so with both of these reasons combined to become iron deficient, you can see it becomes very advantageous to absorb more iron. And indeed, the HFE gene mutations that we see today appear to have arisen in Northern Europe around 4000 BCE. It's not totally clear the specific population from which these gene variants arose. There is some argument about it, whether it's from the Vikings or Celtic people. And some people say it may have arisen in multiple populations. But no matter what, this was the perfect setup for those variants in the HFE gene to develop and subsequently proliferate because it allowed people to avoid iron deficiency by absorbing more iron from their diets. So that that seems to make a lot of sense. You know, this change with the Neolithic revolution, the change in the dietary patterns that that people were eating, and with a lack of iron in that diet leading to an advantage uh, with the arrival of these HFE gene mutations that allowed people to absorb more iron from the food that they were eating. So you could see how that might give someone, you know, an advantage in that in that context. Yeah, I mean, there's the show, right? There's like a pretty good explanation <laughs> for why um, this may have had an evolutionary advantage. And honestly, that may be most of the or much of the explanation. Certainly, there are people in the literature who describe that. But I do want to talk about a second hypothesis because the nutritional pressures eased up by the end of the Neolithic age and the start of the Iron Age. And the rate of HFE gene mutations from studies that we have that have looked at biological samples from these times seems to have continued increasing from the Neolithic Revolution until the Middle Ages, at which point it peaked. Uh, C282Y peaked at about 10% in genome samples that we have from Western Europe at the time. It does make you wonder if some other evolutionary pressure could be at play. Yeah, and um, just sort of contextualizing for other things we've covered on the show that are sort of related to that, we've looked at two types of evolutionary pressures um, with two genetic variants. Um, In previous episodes, we talked about sickle cell trait and resistance to malaria infection, and we talked about uh, the CFTR gene. Uh, with cystic fibrosis and tuberculosis, and so both may have had some sort of infection preventing component. So it you know it does sort of make you wonder, yeah, like you said, Hannah, is there some infection related pressure that gave some advantage to these HFE mutations? Yeah, and I would say if if you are guessing that a gene gave an evolutionary advantage by helping people avoid a deadly or serious infection, that's usually a pretty good guess. So up front, I'll say this is more recent in history. There's less clear evidence about this from a large-term physical anthropology evolutionary perspective, and it's not as well um, fleshed out as the nutritional hypothesis. But there's a few reasons to think that different infections may have contributed to HFE gene variant prevalence peaking when it did. 
And, and you think about historically the infections that might drive evolution most strongly. You know, we mentioned tuberculosis, malaria. You know, another one that you might think about is cholera. And so I'm curious here, like, you know, given the population that we're talking about that's at most risk, like what, what infections might be driving this variant in sort of those of European descent? Yeah. And so there's several infections to which the response is different in people with HFE gene variants. But the two specifically I want to talk about here, one is mycobacterium tuberculosis, surprise, surprise. Uh, and the other is Yersinia species, including Yersinia pestis. So hereditary hemochromatosis gets a lot of what? AKA the plague. What? Yeah. <laughs> AKA the plague. With the plague <laughs> as an evolutionary pressure? No. <laughs> Who could imagine? Um, yeah. Call the presses. <laughs> Um, and TB, uh, which is now getting its second uh, notch in that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hereditary hemochromatosis, we think about it as a disease of iron overload, right? We've been talking about iron this whole episode. But, but remember at the very beginning, I said that it's also responsible for the release of iron from inside monocytes, macrophages, and neutrophils? It's actually not just iron overload. It is also a convenient absence of iron from inside of the macrophages. So mycobacterium tuberculosis, in addition to salmonella typhi, another one you might think about, and other intracellular bacteria, tuberculosis acquires iron and grows inside of the phagosome of macrophages. And because in patients with hereditary hemochromatosis, there's less iron there. The bacteria can't grow as well. So people have actually studied this using macrophages from patients with hereditary hemochromatosis and trying to grow mycobacterium tuberculosis, trying to measure how much iron it can uptake. It takes significantly less iron, 36% of the amount that it would get from normal transferrin, 17% of the amount that it would normally get just as endogenous iron inside the macrophage. And so this was probably important as tuberculosis spread during the Middle Ages, specifically in the form that we now know of as scrofula. We see that other genetic mutations that confer some resistance to mycobacterium tuberculosis also grew during that time, like we talked about in our cystic fibrosis episode. And we also see sort of the counter argument in these evolutionary studies that um, those mutations or variants which give increased susceptibility to tuberculosis also decrease during the same time. Okay, so that's tuberculosis and protection. Um, you mentioned Yersinia um, species as well, um, you know, the, the bacteria that cause the plague. So how does, H, how does um, hemochromatosis interact with um, that infection? Yeah, so that's sort of the other side of the coin. So Yersinia species are siderophilic, so they are iron-loving. But as compared to mycobacterium tuberculosis, they grow in the blood rather than just in macrophage. And they love all of the extracellular free-floating in the blood iron. And so patients with hereditary hemochromatosis are at greater risk for serious infections from Yersinia, Vibrio vulnificus, and other siderophiles that can cause bloodstream infection. At the end of the Middle Ages, the bubonic plague may have exerted a negative evolutionary pressure to bring the frequency down closer to what we see today, though I will say again, this is largely speculative, without enough data out there to tell us what is specifically the dynamic of these different infectious pressures toward the end of the Middle Ages. But we do know that now there is currently a lower prevalence of the gene than there was at that peak in the Middle Ages. So 
that's really the connection between these two kind of common bacteria or very historically important bacteria. I also want to say there's almost certainly some components of the connection between HFE and the immune system that we don't yet understand, but are starting to get some information about. Can you say a little bit more about that connection? Like, what what do you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, we haven't talked very much about the structure of the HFE protein itself. We just sort of have mentioned that it connects to transferrin. And the, the protein itself is very interesting. So I told you at the beginning that in, it interacts with the transferrin receptor to regulate hepcidin. It does so by sitting on the surface as a cell of the cell as a transmembrane protein. And it has a very interesting shape. It has three of what are called alpha domains, um, one closer to the surface and then two above that, that bind to a beta-2 microglobulin chain. So sort of a little two-by-two two structure. And I'll sh- include a picture in the show notes But does beta-2 microglobulin and three alpha chains, does that sound, or alpha domains sound familiar? Are you talking about like the major histocompatibility complex antigen presentation stuff, like that coats cells? That is correct. I am on my outpatient bone marrow transplant month, so I couldn't not bring this up. (laughs) So the major histocompatibility complex, or MHC, is the structure that I'm kind of alluding to. And this structure is very similar to specifically MHC1, which presents self-antigens to cell to T cells. In fact, HFE was initially named HLAH, um, which is sort of our naming convention, ABC, because of how similar it looks to the MHC1 structure. The genetic variants in HFE that we've been talking about often appear to affect the transmembrane domain specifically of this kind of complex. And so because of that, in studies of HFE C282Y cells, there appears to be some effect, though it's mixed, on MHC1 expression and how it affects the activation of different T-cell subsets. All right. So this is pretty cool. I wasn't expecting us to be talking about uh, MHC. And so maybe I should have assumed that given the fact that Hannah's bringing up this topic. But do we know much or did you read much about how this might play into the evolutionary selection sort of either for or against um, some of these genetic variants? Yeah. So this is probably the least settled science that I've seen so far on this topic, but it is extremely interesting. So different groups have tried to get a little bit of a sense of what is the inflammasome, right? What are the inflammatory cytokines that are present at different rates in patients with hereditary hemochromatosis? And similarly, what is the effect on which T cell subsets? So for example, T regulatory cells versus cytotoxic T cells that are activated. What I'll say is this may affect the response to viral infections and may also affect tumor surveillance because remember self-preservation of MHC antigens, both of which are these roles of MHC1 and CD8 positive T cells. The studies are overall very mixed and limited. What we do know is that there clearly is an enhanced susceptibility to Yersinia pestis and other blood-borne siderophiles, and we do clearly see this effect on tuberculosis and salmonella typhi. I'll say, even if we don't have a clear understanding of how the MHC homology specifically plays in, it's really interesting, and I imagine it's something that is going to evolve more as people seem to be actively researching it. Super fascinating. I mean, you've really taken us on this journey from sort of prehistory to uh, the Middle Ages 
and sort of infection susceptibility and pressures both for and against the advantages and or disadvantages of having HFE gene mutations and now um, some uh, sort of immunological implications as well. So anything else that you uh, wanted to share uh, at the end of the episode? Okay, just two last things, I promise. (laughs) There's so much here. So the first is where did the name come from? Isn't it kind of odd? Hemochromatosis. Um, The roots directly translate to blood pigment color presence. And I originally thought that that might be uh, the blood pigment color that's seen in the skin, this idea of hyperpigmentation from iron deposition. But in fact, it was on pathology. So Dr. von Recklinghausen in 1889 described that there was increased pigment in the liver and correctly understood that it was iron, but he thought that it was internal bleeding. And so Uh, This is one of the first studies that was done of patients identifying hereditary hemochromatosis. And he named it because he thought that there was bleeding inside of the liver that was causing the disease. Hypothesis, not quite accurate. The name is pretty good. And it certainly has stuck. Clearly. (laughs) Now, almost 250 years later. And then the last thing. So there's clearly benefits to this day, even beyond the infectious piece. And this is a famous study of French Olympic world championship and European championship athletes that showed that 80% of French medal winners in aerobic sports, which were Nordic skiing, judo, and rowing, had heterozygous HFE gene mutations. And so the hypothesis is maybe that ability to carry more iron is a little bit of difference in terms of enhanced oxygen carrying capacity and hemoglobin. Just that little bit of difference might be the difference between French medal winners and French non-medal winners. So the evolutionary advantage was either dietary changes, cinnamon toast crunch uh, uh, being introduced, some infectious disease, or Nordic skiing, sort of the pressures of being a good Nordic skier. Uh, sort of, wow, that's what a trifecta. <laughs> I was, I'm, thinking, I'm sort of reminded of this famous uh, Jerry Seinfeld bit about second place at the Olympics. Um, and sort of the razor thin margin of victory. Like if I'd only had a pimple that day, <laughs> I might've, uh, I might've won gold, but if I'd only, only had that HFEG mutation. So close. Yeah, we'll link to it in the so show close. notes, that study. All right, Hannah, so you have introduced innumerable facts, but you got to give us take home points. So what do you got? All right. So hereditary hemochromatosis is a condition that is most commonly caused by variants in the HFE gene, which regulate um, iron uptake in the bowel and immune cells, but can also be caused by other gene variants. And so people of any ancestry who have iron overload should be considered for HFE or hereditary hemochromatosis-like conditions. HFE gene variants may have been beneficial for avoiding iron deficiency during the shift to agrarian lifestyles and consumption of iron chelating cereal grains in Europe and in the Neolithic age. A second selective pressure to favor these HFE gene variants may also have occurred um, due to the risk of mycobacterium tuberculosis and salmonella typhi during the Middle Ages. And lastly, there's probably a lot of other ways that HFE modulates the immune system that we are still learning about, and the science is still evolving. Well, while that science still evolves, I'll tell you that that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Our audio is edited by Claire Morgan of Notterly, and our producer is Giancarlo Bonomo. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. 
You can also subscribe to our Substack at thecuriousclinicians.substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MSC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.